everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Revere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. That is my little mission to do my little part in this big old world uh, to expose prison systems here in America. Um, the punishment-minded style prisons. You might think, well, that's why they're there to, to be punished. Partly, but it's to be rehabilitated. That's the point, to change their behavior, uh, to to help them out. Those who were abused and tortured themselves, some even turned out to be serial killers, which is mostly what I focus on. The worst of the worst, whom the world deems unlovable, uh, trying to reach them to make a positive difference. A lot of these men and women in this punishment-style prisons are going to get out. So I'm exposing these prison systems in America that have a seven, over a 70% recidivism rate, which means there's over 70% chance they're going to reoffend within three to five years of once getting back into regular society. Some of these people are released directly from solitary confinement. If you read my book, The Story of You, of you, Masaki, that's why you, Masaki, um, the suicide rate is astronomical of people who are released directly from solitary confinement out to the free world. Um, I encourage everybody to look up recidivism rates in prisons in America and and, uh, and see what I'm talking about. Um, prisons like over in Norway now have a less than 20% chance because they're focused on positive reinforcement, You know, threatening people who are psychopathic and violent offenders don't work. Some of these are not deterred by um, punishment, but they are with reward. You know, so this positive reinforcement style has been changing the lives of numerous violent offenders. Uh, luckily, states like North Dakota, um, even over in Oregon, are they're taking this system, especially uh, uh, like Holden Prison over up in, New- in Norway. Um, they're following suit. Many prisons in America have actually toured Norway, uh, their prison facilities. Um, but the change is so drastic. You know, the public outcry, oh, what do you mean? You're not going to be punished? They're going to be schooled and and get therapy and and training and there's the facilities are nice and the walls are actually painted a nice color uh there's no locks on the doors and they can cook their own food what is this club med so it's you can see it's a a long road to haul uh when the wardens and prison facilities and people who run it the government that run it um, pressure from politicians pressure pressure from people I want to see these people punished, punished, punished. All right, well, then how about we release them when they get out next door to you and your little kids? How about that? You know, let's see how you feel then. Um, What are you going to do? Are you going to protect us? Well, we're tried. I'm trying uh, to promote positive reinforcement in prison systems, to educate, to school, to love, to have compassion. Yes, to love and have compassion on people who commit violent offenses because some of these people have never experienced kindness in their whole lives. You know, I'm not talking about blind love, like, oh, I want to have Richard Ramirez's babies. Uh, okay, if that's you, oh, oh, that's fine. <laughs> you know, But th- there's a point to this. You're not, you're not glorifying people because, you know, they eat people. You know, and, and granted, we all like a good horror movie. But the goal is rehabilitation. The goal is understanding a psychopathic mind. And then we joke on here, it's a lighter side of serial killers, and it's all positive. But sometimes it's how to reach people, to really build relationships up. You know, we're going to talk about fun things. Now, Keith is a little different. We talk about the victims. But his victims, he just can't do a normal crime, a normal killing, if you will. There's always There could be a movie about each victim that he's done. Uh, it's amazing. Um, this one we're going to be talking about today. If you look on the Wikipedia pages and, and 
online stories and the documentaries. Um, his victim, three, you'll see Cynthia Lynn Rose Wilcox is her name. That was a body they found in the area where Keith said he had strangled a woman. But was it really Cynthia Lynn Rose Wilcox? That is the question. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation, shall we? That's what you're here for, right? Now listen to, hear, <laughs> listen to me babble, or maybe hopefully a little bit, a little bit of me babbling. Um, but let's get right to it. Mr. Jesperson, sir, as I was doing research for this, I'm thinking, oh, Cynthia Lynn, Rose Wilcox, uh, Cynthia Wilcox, Cynthia Rose, you know, go by different names depending, but the full name is Cynthia Lynn Rose Wilcox. Um, I don't think that's who you killed. I didn't, I didn't kill Cynthia, and we are still going through that right now. The only reason that Cynthia Lynn Rose came into play was that that was the only body they found there. They've never, they've never found my body that I put there. Because that one was found, they figured that must be mine anyway. Well, of course you would think. I mean, you say, hey, I, I put the body right here, and they found the body basically right there. So you never knew her name. So <laughs> um, you will have no idea that it, it wasn't Cynthia. I thought that's what, they, when they said that's what they found, I thought, I figured that was who she, she was, but she's not. When I went to Riverside County back in 2009 and 10, they showed me a picture of her. And I said, they asked me, well, tell me about that. And I said, I don't know who that is. He said, well, that's from Cincinnati Road. And I said, well, she looked like she's on, on solid ground. The one I put in there was in the, in the real powdered dirt covered with covered up. You know, this is not mine. And then we got, we got a different thing. Now, I remember when the detectives came and talked to me back in 96 on a deal. Uh, one of the detectives said, after I was talking, he said, it doesn't even sound like it's our case. Now, what's the timeline? Let's start there. From from victim number two to victim number three, what kind of timeline were between both of them? Uh, and then tell us a story about um, who everybody thought was uh, Cynthia uh, Lynn Rose Wilcox. My second murder body had was, was sitting out there for a couple of weeks, and it would be right about the time that they discovered my second murder is when I committed my third, which was in August, September of 1992. Uh, I was making an overnight delivery from Ellensburg, Washington, to Fresno, California, with Washington beef. Now, my boss had one of these uh, loads that he just had to have overnight. I left like 11 o'clock in the morning on a, on a Thursday, and on a Friday morning, I had to be in Fresno by 7 in the morning. So I was in a hurry. I was, just, I was pushing along pretty good. Now, looking back on the on my second murder, the kidnapping I was trying didn't work out. It was a um, she escaped, she was escaped, and she was going to really escape. And so I didn't want to go through that again. And uh, so I was a little tired or so when I rolled into the rest area along Turlock along Highway 99 and uh, on the southbound side. And it was between two and three a.m. I pulled in the rest area, found a, a I found no parking spots available. I parked next to where the rest areas, restrooms were, and while I was sitting there waiting for a parking spot to become available, uh, this girl got up and sat on my running board, and I was talking to her. I rolled my window down. She was a pleasant-looking, pretty girl. She's dressed in a red top, 
blue jeans, uh, sneakers. Just uh, that's what the the hookers were wearing in that rest area. Everyone, all the hookers wore a red top of some sort, and uh, she just had the blue jeans. Now we're sitting there talking. I was like, um, uh, why don't you just hop in my truck with me, and we'll I'll drive you to a, a secluded area. We'll take care of business, and I'll bring you back. And she didn't want to do that. She wanted to uh, stay in the parking lot. And so I had to figure a way how to uh, keep her there. She's nice. And so I realized that I pulled past every other truck there, then I backed into a spot that really wasn't a parking spot. It was just a, a place out of the way. And uh, so I invited her in. She gets in, and she makes a beeline to the bed. And I fall right behind her, and I grab her by the neck, and I push down hard, and I hear her snap. I believe I actually broke her neck. And then at the very same time I did this, I had her knock. I see there's a knock on my passenger door. And I look around behind me, and there's two faces, two of these girls' faces pressed against the glass looking at me. Now, I don't know. I mean, later I find out when I, when I try to do the same thing in the parking lot that they actually saw nothing because it's just a dark hole where I was at. But I... But looking back, I see all this light out there, and I see their faces. I'm thinking they're seeing everything. So I panic. I really do. I panic, and I jump into the front driver's seat, and I, I put the truck in gear, pop the air brakes, and down the road I go. Well, I'm still thinking about the body in the back. Is she still alive? Is she going to come out of it or whatever? So the next exit I pull off, and I find a parking spot there on the on-ramp going back, and I get back there, and I'm not sure whether she's alive or dead, but I, I assume she's still alive. And I take my duct tape, and I, I put a, a roll around her, her head, around her, her mouth, and I tie her hands and her feet together. And, and then I drive down towards Livingston. Now, uh, when I get to Livingston, there's a little boot that you call the Blueberry Hill Cafe. And in behind is a bunch of truck parking. So I pull in there and I swing real wide and I come around and I park against the building. And this dirt parking lot is a bunch of powdered dirt. And this is the stuff when you step down on it, it just blows out front of your feet. It's about six inches deep. And because it's been pounded by trucks going in and out of there, it's just powder. And so I, I got out and I walked around uh, the truck area. And I see there's a bunch of trucks parked next to me, and there's another one, a couple more uh, to my left, which is to the south of me. And I walk out in this parking lot, and which I've been there before many times, and I, I, I'm trying to look for a place to put her body. Now, in the very back of the parking lot, there's a bunch of trees and an old dilapidated building. And I was afraid if I put her there that, you know, I might step on a nail or something like that. There's a lot of dead planks laying around. And I saw a tumbleweed on a on a kind of a roadway to my left, um, maybe 50 feet from where that old building was. And I, I walked over to the tumbleweed and I pulled it up and I said, well, okay, I'll put her here underneath the tumbleweed and uh, cover with the dirt that's in the parking lot. So I go back to the truck. I remove all of her tape, everything I had to put it in. I, I tried to find a pulse or anything I couldn't find. I figured that she's dead because her neck, her head just flopped from side to side. It wasn't all. Um, I just figured I snapped her neck. And then I, I, I laid her up against the, the 
the door of the, of the uh, sleeper. And I got out and again walked around the parking lot making sure nobody was awake watching. This is like, by this time it's about 3.30 in the morning. So it's going to get light out pretty quick. You can see the sun coming. And uh, I opened the door. She fell over my shoulder. I walked over to where the tumbleweed was. And I laid her down and kicked a bunch of dirt all over her. And before I left, I stomped on her on her neck just to be sure. And then I got back in the truck. I backed out, and I drove down to Fresno and made my delivery. After my delivery, uh, I went over to Klein's truck stop, and I parked there for the for the weekend. It was, uh, and when I was at there during the day, I, I looked back at my street to see whether anyone could see anything, and it wasn't anything I, that I could see. So I, I, I was pretty, pretty much at ease at that time. And that's, that's how that happened. Now, it, it, it's crazy. This, this, whole, this whole case is nuts because it's still really not solved because that body has never been found. The one I put in the dirt parking lot, this is a powdered dirt parking lot. Uh, I feel what may happen is the trucks might have driven over her and then crushed her down into dirt, and she might have become mummified underneath all that powdered dirt because if if she if, if it, any juices might have come from the body, it, it probably uh, it, it probably was just covered up by the dirt itself. And uh, now there's a there's a there now they, they have the Cynthia Lynn Rose case that they're calling it mine because at behind Blueberry Hill Cafe. And this is hard to explain in a way, but in 1996, uh, my lawyer made a deal with me uh, with uh, with Merced County, and they came in and talked to me. And while I was telling them what I had done and where I put the body, I had a detective tell me, well, that sounds like the wrong case. We're not working on that case. And one of the other detectives told them to shut up, and so they listened to me. Uh, so, th where, where, how come it became the Cynthia At the very same time where I put the body there, and around that same time, Cynthia Lynn Rose had died of a drug overdose and was put in that old dilapidated building behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe in 1992. Now, her body was never found for about two weeks, and it became very uh, rotten smelling and so forth. And maybe the guys coming out of the restaurant didn't tell the difference between the food they ate and what they smelt in the back of the parking lot. I don't know, but she could, they never found her for a while. They, uh, they finally did, and in 1994, when I wrote the uh, happy face letter to the Oregonian, they, uh, they mentioned that I put the body behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe, and so because the Sunset Earl was the only body they found, they assumed that is the one that I put there, and it isn't. But because they assumed it, they kept telling it is. Now, I had to assume the same thing because when, when they kept saying it was my case, I had to assume it was, which is crazy, but that's how it opened up. It, that, that became fact until 2009 when Riverside County, California came and got me, and they showed me a picture of a woman dead along, you know, laid on the ground, and they asked me what tell me about it. And I looked at it, I said, I don't know who that is. And of course, they, they went ahead and they said, well, that was Cincinnati Rose. And I said, well, I didn't do that one. That's not mine. And uh, so because 
they said, you know, they showed me this picture, and then I said, well, I know then that's not mine. Then where is that one found? Well, that was found by that old dilapidated building beyond Duvera Hill Cafe. But mine was like 50 feet away from it. Now, here's a, here's a side note to this here. It's a spinoff. Now, remember we talked about the Bennett case, about when I said I was responsible and they said I was a liar. Well, this is one of those cases where the, the prosecutor got involved and said that I was a liar in this case as well. I was claiming that I didn't kill Susan and Rose, that she died of a drug overdose, and therefore I was lying, and therefore I, was, I didn't kill Ben because I was, must be a liar there too. Um, the, the other case is also my fifth case, which is the uh, Patricia Skipple case, where they claimed there was a drug overdose as well, trying to call me a liar on this. So the, they claimed I didn't kill Cynthia Lynn Rose in 1990, uh, in, in a 1995 debate over the Bennett case. But now all of a sudden, because I proved that I didn't lie in the Bennett case, now they say I didn't lie about this case. <laughs> so that's where we stand on, on that. Uh, and, and then in Merced County, okay, Merced County will not settle our deal knowing uh, it isn't mine. They know, they know that, that uh, Seth Lynn Rose is not my case. Any attempt to change these assessments of the case is blocked. They have never looked for my victim 50 feet away. So so what? It, so what's going to happen now? Uh, there's Briar Lee Mitchell has that book out there called uh, Serial Killers Then and Now, and uh, she had, we were trying to locate uh, my Jane Doe's and that, and, and this, has come, this case has come up, and she's kind of hooked into it. She's trying to do everything she can to discover where this body is. So there, there may very well come in the near future, maybe dog teams or something like that will go out, and they'll try to locate where the body is. Now, the big problem we have right now is that they changed the, the Highway 99 in Livingston. They, they got rid of the streetlight, and now they may have may have moved the highway over, maybe over where the body was. I don't know. Now, you had mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, how much time between victim number two and number three, but what was actually going on in your mind? Uh, were you actively looking for somebody else, like another victim? Um, was it purely, you know, looking for a girlfriend, like a real life girlfriend? Were you looking just for, you know, a prostitute? Uh, or were you actively seeking somebody to kill? Well, number two, like I said, was uh, being discovered about the, you know, she was there uh, decomposing for about two weeks. And within about two weeks from the, the murder of number two to number three. And that's, uh, that's when I was headed through there. Now, my attention. When I pulled in the rest area was hopefully to get, you know, I was going to look for a good parking spot where we couldn't be disturbed, and I was just going to pay for the sex and move on. That's all I was going to do. And uh, it, 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 and, and, every, and every time I turned around, it was it was something different. Now, the story you probably might have heard is that I had said, in order for the court to hear, you're going to make the victim responsible for her death. And you explain, you know, you have to blame the victim in order for the trial to happen, kind of like that. So the, so the story I told them was that I, I pulled in an interview parking spot and I got parked and I was sitting there and I, and, and I wanted to rest and then 
I get a knock on the door and this girl there's looking at her. Yeah, what's the company? I said, I don't want any company. So then she said, yells at me. So well, they get the hell out of my customer's parking spot. So she pisses me off and, and I said, well, fine, come on in. And then I kill her. Well, that was a story you probably heard a lot of times because I kept pushing that narrative along because that's what I wanted to push because that's the way the court wants it to be done. They want me to blame the victim. That's how the system works. Yes, that's basically how, how how it's written online, for sure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I portray the case that's happening, but it's not how it happened. I pulled in there, and I was looking. I had to look for a parking spot and park, and then I had to create one. And I knew the moment I created one there, that sooner or later, well, probably within minutes, I would have a guy knocking on my door, hey, you got to move that goddamn truck because you're in my way. Right? I wanted I wanted her to go with me out of that out of there, even even down the lane, even down the the, the, the on ramp to the highway. There were some spots down there I could probably pull off, and, and we could have engaged in our sexual fantasies, whatever we wanted to have. And then she could get out and move on, but she didn't want to leave the park, uh, the rest area. Now, what did she, did she say something to you? Like, what what made you so angry um, that you decided to kill her? Because I had to I had to jump through hoops. And then when I then when I went over and I pushed on her neck, I was I was I was just pissed off and I pushed her and it snapped and I'm, I believe I I think I broke her neck because right off the bat I could smell feces and everything else like she just released herself so it was one of those things like oh that didn't work out very well. I mean, by the way you're describing it, you know that you hear you heard the snapping of the neck. Uh, you took her outside. You said you stomped on her neck after that. Because my first thought was she survived. Like it's clearly, you know, clear that, you know, Cynthia uh, was not uh, your victim. But there's a victim there. So at first, my first thought was she got up and split. I mean, very damaged and maybe with a broken neck. But there's 0% chance she survived, right? There was nothing. I mean, nothing told me that she was alive. Uh, when I stopped to put tape around her, I, 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 I believe that she was dead at that time, but I was, didn't want to spend the time to really, you know, to check. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go somewhere else where I could have the time with her to discover what all I needed to do. And you kind of already answered another question I was going to ask you, like in the Bennett case. Um, and you admitted there's no reason for you to memorize what somebody was wearing at the time. That wasn't, you know... Um, your intention was to, you know, make a mental inventory of what somebody was wearing, and you got some of the facts wrong on the Bennett case. Oh, I thought she was wearing this, that, this, that, or the other. But in this case, it seems to be very clear. The hookers at that specific spot all wore some sort of red shirt. Um, and you said, you know, I had a red shirt and she had sneakers. Well, Cynthia had dark hair that was longer, wasn't short. She was definitely wearing a brown skirt, slip-on black shoes, uh, with a little small bow, and a, and a jean jacket. Well, in Cynthia and Rose's case, she's, from what I understand, she wore a skirt. My, my, my victim is wearing blue jeans. She's fully dressed, wearing blue jeans, a red top, and sneakers. I didn't check her pockets for an ID card or anything like that. Hell, she probably still has her ID card in her shoe or something. The idea of this thing, now, Cynthia and Rose died of a drug overdose. The autopsy shows that. There's no residue uh, on uh, duct tape around her mouth, around her wrist, around her ankles. There's nothing like that to that goes along with my story. 
Autopsy report um, on Cynthia Lynn Rose Wilcox. Um, the amount of drugs in her in her system, hard hard drugs, was astronomical. Number one, uh, and I want to say even more importantly, but just as important, um, it's that she was not stabbed, not shot, not ra- no sexual assault. All right, uh, not strangled. No bruising around the neck, nose, no broken bones. So your victim was clearly had a broken neck of some type of major damage, if not a broken neck, certainly strangled. No duct tape residue and all this and that. Uh, it was not her. Yeah, but Merced County doesn't want that to be. They want it to be closed with my name on it. That's what they're after. Merced wants, they want me to be... They want this case to go away, right? And I think it's because they've never looked for the body I said was there. So over the last 28 years that I was had talked to these people and told them where to look, they haven't looked. Now what happens if, if all of a sudden now someone like like Breyer uh, gets you know a team in there and they find it? It becomes a crime scene, yes, but Merced County won't look that great, right? And that's what they're, that's what, you know, when we ran into, when, when she went to Riverside just trying to get DNA from my victim there so they could identify her, they, she ran into a big bunch of problems because they, they don't understand this, that the serial killer is trying to get outside sources to find out who my victim's identity is. And even her friends. Um, or at least, you know, the, the girls that she hung out with, maybe fellow prostitutes, whatever they were, um, they all said they were not shocked. Um, she ended up dead. Uh, she said she literally stole $900 uh, from someone they said was a Mexican guy. Um, the morning of the day she supposedly overdosed, died, got murdered, whatever it may be, um, this same guy was slap, saw slapping her around because he wanted his money, $900 um I don't know if it was in drugs or cash uh, that that she stole from him. Saw her getting into his truck. Um, the guy that she stole nine hundred dollars of money or drugs from was just slapped in front of her other friends um, that she saw, and was saw getting into his truck. Now his truck, first of all, was white, and yours was like a like the was you were at, were you at the the purple one then or the uh... mine was uh, a plum. At night, at night you looked it looked black actually. It really just sounds like a horrible coincidence. Well, the, the coincidence is, is that I put a body behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe, and at about that very same time, since Lynn Rose was, had died and was put behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe. Now, within 50 feet of where I took mine, but they didn't find mine because I think what happened, like I said, I think the truck ran over. It's kind of a lane there that they would drive through. Now, they would probably drive over and crush whatever she is into, into the pulverizer underneath that powder dirt. It would just flow over. But you walk out there, and then you just, you just tough, tough, tough every time you 
time you walk, you just, the, the dirt just flowed out from underneath your feet. Kind of sounds like, uh, you know, kind of walking on the beach. What's well, worse than the beach, because this is just powdered dirt. It just flows everywhere. Well, if you drive over dirt parking lot long enough, it just becomes pulverized dust. And it just covers everything. It just covers everything. And that's what I ended up, I covered her, you know, kicked a lot of dirt around her and, and, and on top of her before I left. I didn't want her to be seen by all this. And then I, that when I left, I, I backed up and drove the hell out of there. So when the people in the morning, when they got up, hell, they could have drove right on over to drive out of the parking lot. And when people talk about, well, they've never found the other body, well, they had no reason to look. They, <laughs> You know, you said it was her because you didn't see a picture or anything else, so there's no reason for them uh, to look for a second body uh, until now. Here's a real kicker right here. Uh, what's that say to the, the, the police department that will not look for it? They're willing to allow a family who's looking for their loved one to, to keep looking without looking for it themselves. They're willing to allow the public to believe that I killed Sid Lynn Rose. And even on her tombstone, it's, it's listed with, I, I'm listed on her tombstone as, as being the person around her when she died. How long was it when, you know, from the time when they found the body uh, to the time they actually put your name on, uh, on her? Well, they put my name to it when I sent the happy face letter into the Oregonian in 1994. When I claimed I had a body behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe in August, September of 1992. And so they added two and two together. Well, we have a body from back there, and the only body they had back there was since then Rose. They found her, and, and that became an unsolved or whatever until 1994 when I wrote the happy face letter and claimed that. I had a body behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe. That time in 1994, they decided, well, if I had a body, then the only body they found was in 19, at that time when I said I put one there was Cincinnati Rose. And that's when they tied it together. Now, that's why they, every time it came up, Cincinnati Rose case came up, they always pointed at me and said, well, you killed her. And I said, well, I must have because that's the only body they found there. Little did I know, they didn't, they didn't find the right one. They didn't find that out until 2009 when the detective showed me a picture of Simpson Rose, and it was, I think it was a stage picture because it didn't show any decomp, decomp in it, but I think it was a stage one, and they wanted to know what I thought about it, and I said, I don't know who that is. So, so from 2009 on, and my lawyer knows that that's not my case, well, of course, Merced County doesn't want to settle my case. I have a life sentence in writing to a life sentence to a murder that happened. Now, what happens if they can't find the body? Did, the, did I actually kill someone there or not? I didn't kill Cynthia Rose. She died of a drug overdose. What, did, what would they charge me with in that case? If I Would they charge me with just leaving a body there? It's not a murder. Well, that's the thing, right? If they prove that you did not... Um, kill Cynthia, which clearly is a drug overdose. I mean, all the evidence, including the autopsy, says that. It's almost like, well, it wasn't you, so but you're charged with murder. You know, <laughs> you if, if they proved otherwise, it's like, do they take time off the sentence, or you know, how does that work? They couldn't charge with murder on that because she didn't die of murder; she died of drug overdose. And what's wilder 
is, I mean, no, with, with the Tanya Bennett case, with this, I mean, none of these are normal. I mean, not that killing somebody is normal, but it's not like, okay, uh, he strangled, he found somebody uh, to murder, strangled her for whatever reason, put the body over here. The police found the body. Um, evidence said this person did it. Uh, they confessed they're in jail, case closed. No, there's, there's so much more. Like, each of these cases are their own movie. Um, and it's like, can you just kill normally? You know, it's always – and really, I mean, it's not like it's your fault. It's just these, these surroundings uh, around all of this. It's not my fault. Man, I, you know, I'm a murderer, yes, but that's – this, this whole thing, like, like the Bennett case, when I was trying to solve that one, this, these prosecutors were claiming I didn't do this one because they wanted to side with Multnomah County. They wanted to side with Multnomah County, and I was like, huh? This is their problem. The moment that I prove that case, then they, they drop and they decide it'll automatically fine again. It's just so wild. Um, and speaking of wild, another crazy part of the story is when you were in the back um, compartment um, with, you know, we don't know who her name is, you know, who we once we thought was Cynthia, um, murdering her, what was going on? What were you thinking of when you heard the knock on the window? And two girls looking in. Clearly, you could see out, and you could clearly see them. So maybe take us. And so I get asked that a lot. You know, people ask me to ask you. You know, really, what was going on inside of your mind? So what was going on inside your mind when you see uh, two people? I'm assuming two two girls, two women, two other prostitutes um, looking in. What were you thinking at that exact moment? Were you thinking, you know, um, a- after the fact, after you know, I got down to, you know, I got to go get them, I got to go kill them, or I just got to get the heck out of there. Uh, what was going through your mind? Well, no, I was I, I was in the middle of, of, of blinking this girl's neck, and I was looking over my shoulder, and I see these two faces looking at me through the window. And I swear to God, I believe that they, they saw everything, and that they were like, but I, I come to realize I don't think they, they actually saw anything. But when I, I realized that they were looking, and, and it was, oh, I, was, I panicked, and I was like in hyper- I dropped what I was doing. I, I slid to the front seat. I popped the air rails. I grabbed the gear, and, and I was down the road. And I was panicking that they were actually coming after me. You know, they're, they're looking for my driver's license, and my my license plate, and truck number, and all this other stuff. I could just envision that the cops would be on my ass in, in short order. And so I was in panic mode. It was, I just completely out of my realm. I, I thought I'd gotten away with it, and, and even even while I sat in Klein's truck stop that that weekend, I kept looking over my shoulder to see if they were coming for me. It's just uh, it's just a weird, it's just paranoia feeling of, of, of that's a, one of the first things that happens when you kill someone is that you, you develop this paranoia that they already know you're the murderer, they, that they're always coming to your door, they're going to be knocking on your door, and they're going to be there. And they know they know all. It's like it's like the the word of God. And they know all, right? Written in the book of life. And it's all going to be there. And, and it, but when I find it's like when uh, I get my first one, I, I went to the restaurant and the cops showed up and sat right next to me and didn't know anything. That's when you start to realize that they, how the system really works. That they don't know. They. They look at you, and you're just another person. But at that time, at that time when I saw those two faces in there, 
Now, I, I envisioned going back, and at one point I was thinking, man, i got to make this go away. i got to make this go away. But I, I thought that, I thought, well, maybe I could invite them in too, right? Kill them too at the same time. Uh, and I controlled two more at the same time. And I was like, i got to get the hell out of here. I can't chance this. I've got to get going. i got to move on. And that's what I did. But like I said, there's, there's a constant, there's, there's a, like, it's like you've got caught shoplifting and you're trying to run away from the store owner. <laughs> yeah. Now, what changes in your mind from, you know, you just said, oh, i got to get out of there. Oh, do I go back? Do I get the girls? Do I try to, you know, kill two at one time? Can I handle that? Or, you know what, I just got to get the heck out of there. You know, that paranoia, like you're saying, sitting in a restaurant, cops coming in, oh, they're looking for me. Um, so when does paranoia turn to the urge to kill again? Whether I know you're not, you know, seeking and stalking people that kind of happens happenstance if you will um but what happens to the paranoia now when does the paranoia um fade or just change or maybe it's always there the whole time before uh, you kill the next victim i changed my i changed my offer of in other words what i did is the initial one the initial murder is i guess killed after the incident. And then the second one come along, I was thinking of kidnapping her and having her for a long time, and that didn't work out. And the third one, it was just, I was hoping she'd stay with me, and then she just, it became a battle. And I decided that from that point on, I said I wasn't going to, uh, I wasn't going to go after anyone unless they wanted to be there with me. So I, I changed my mode of operandi on, on how I dealt with people. And so I didn't kill everybody that was with me, don't get me wrong. I, but I did have, I picked and choose as I went along. And number four was a, a prostitute I used several times in Wilsonville, and that's 286 at the Burton Brothers truck stop there. I had uh, used her services many times. And there's a story, which, you know, we'll get into this one later, uh, more of a, it's a timing thing. See, the, between two and three was about two weeks. Between three and four was like uh, two months. So it's like, so I, and between number four and number five is like five, six months. That's wild. I, uh, I know you know Nico Clue. Um, I had him on the podcast a while ago. I talked to him a lot. Um, he was saying the authors that he likes to read uh, are the ones who have actually committed crimes. They know what it's like. Um, have you actually ever thought, not writing a book, I know there's been books um, written on you, but yourself writing a book, whether it's a, a fiction book or whatever it is, did you ever think of something like that from your literal expertise, I guess you could say, of actually writing a book?
and was making his way across to New Jersey to uh, surrender himself to the parole board because he was, he, was a, he was a transfer. And he got he gets a, he gets a ride with some truck driver going that way, who just happens to be the guy named George, but his real name is is Mike. And and Mike picks him up and drives him across. And as they're driving across, Mike is asking him all these crazy questions about who's in the prison with him and who's this and which who's myself, Randy Woodfield, and, you know, Jerome um, Burroughs and stuff. And then they go under the internet, which is now new to the guy because he just came out of prison and they start talking about Bundy and BGK and all this. And just sort of along that same type of character. And then uh, all the while, Mike is actually, when, when he gets, when he meets people down the road, they all yell at him, hey, George, how you doing? And this guy that, that uh, is riding with him is uh, this ex-con is going, wait a minute, you said your name is Mike. How come you, how can you name me George? Well, I use the name George when I'm out on the road so that it doesn't, anything I do out here doesn't get back to my boss, right? And, or anything else. So uh, if, if he were to do anything illegal, then it's all, it's all on George, it's not on Mike. But, but George is actually a serial killer, and he's giving this guy a ride over there to drop him off in the parole board. But they talk about all these cases that go on. I wrote it out probably three times, and each time I handed it to a prospective, you know, writer, they just they just stick it in the closet and they fall on it because it's a lot of, there's a lot of work there. But you know, I come up with this idea. And I thought this would be a great idea for a book, and I and uh, I, I, I spent the time on it. I've written it out twice, twice, and each time it, it's just gone nowhere. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of, it's a lot of work to do a book. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, um, I would keep at it, you know, for sure. Again, somebody, an expert, if you will, <laughs> in your field, uh, you know, again, even like what Nika was talking about, those are the writers that he really likes reading because they know exactly uh, what the real details are, you know. easy for sure you watch, you watch Yellowstone? yeah it's a great show i'm not completely caught up i think i'm on either season two or three Take them to the train station. Yeah, oh, come on. Everyone's going to the train station. Now, towards the very end, you know, uh, uh, Beth, they're trying to make it sound like Beth didn't know the train ex- station existed, but I don't think that, you know, it's because, see, her 
them and takes them to the train station, and that's what happens there with the cameras. They pick them. Well, if Beth didn't know where the train station was, how was she over there at the train station to take a picture of, of Jamie pulling out his real dad's body that he just shot? I mean, there's little things like that that just, you know, they're, they're trying to feed it back in with wording that, that oh, I told you where I was going to take it, but why would it? Yeah, Beth is either the craziest one or the smartest one. I haven't quite figured that out yet. Maybe both. be true. Oh, it's so true because um, every time you hear, not every time, but most of the time, when you hear an offender who strangled somebody and they do an interview, they almost always say the same thing. Wow, I didn't know it was going to be that hard. You know, hard to choke somebody, hard to kill somebody. I didn't know it was going to take that long. Or they woke back up, you know, they just put them sleep, you know, like a martial art, like a jujitsu choke or something. They just passed out. But they didn't realize how long it took. I mean, that's why some of them um, went and got rope and strangled them that way and, and, and twisted it, you know, um, uh, some type of, of rope around their neck or, or tie or plastic bag or something. They're like, uh, just to strengthen their hands alone in the amount of time. Um, it was ridiculous. They all said the same thing. They were surprised how long it took. Who's that one serial killer that decided to kill this one that was out in the, out in the garden? Went down and, and bent down and, and strangled her. And then... Uh ran back to his car and he was trying to drive out of town and she had woke up and the cops had arrested him for attacking her, assaulting her without killing her kind of thing. He didn't realize what really happened. He later went on and killed like five or six more. Or, or what about that one that, that killed one on, on a um, uh, near a lake and he thought he strangled her so he tried to get rid of the body in the lake. Well, she ended up drowning because she wasn't dead yet. It came out as a drowning, and then when he's reading in the newspaper, he said, what do you mean a drowning? A strangle, a strangle of it. But he didn't realize that he had to hang on longer and longer. You know, dark. now, some of these cases I've read about, I think it was on, like, some of these Barry D, Christopher Barry D novels that he has, where he's trying to, he's one of those guys that'll dig up the information on the internet and write about it. He's, he, I, I found that, you know, the... Uh, his material is that he has to talk the internet and stuff like that, but he's just retelling the same story. Yeah, so so I read the one book, I think I told you, I, I read the one book where he said that I was uh, charged with first-degree sexual assault in the Don Flavo case, and he had documents to prove it. That's what he said in the book, is mm-hmm. dead man talking or dead man, whatever, like that, whatever, anyway. I read this, and I was like, no, this is wrong. I'm not, there's no documentation to say I was... Uh, was, the whole case had been thrown out. What the hell are they talking about? I contacted uh, John Blake Publishing in, in, um, in UK, and I said, this is fraud. I wasn't I wasn't convicted of any crime in the case. The case was dismissed. There was no documentation saying I was convicted for degree sexual assault in the case. So they were supposed to pull the book. Well, I get a letter from Christopher Barry Deed, berating me, saying that... Um, 
Sounds like him. <laughs> really? Oh, well, but, you know, he had to own up to the publisher. The publisher was going to pull the book. You know, he was going to have to rewrite the damn thing or, you know, put it out. Show me the documentation. I told Don by Ask them to provide the public, you know, the, the, uh, all the documentation because there is none. He could never provide anything. He just went ahead and he wrote some, what he wanted to write anyway because I criticized him uh, on his inability to investigate, look at the facts, and kind of figure things out instead of just writing them down. Yeah, that's for, that's true. And I had uh, my own dealings with him. Um, I, I heard about his books, and I thought, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. I got a couple books signed by him. Then he kind of found out who I was and what I did and how um, some men and women like yourself and some very, you know, some violent defenders and serial killers, Manson family members, everybody, um, were really opening up to me, like friendly conversations, telling me things they've never told anybody else um, and things that, you know, I had permission to share online or to write about in the book. And he wanted to write a book with me. Um, really, he was fascinated why he's visited people in prison before. Um, and some of the people he wrote about, mostly I think it's, you know, on Wikipedia. He just, you know, a lot of it just basic stuff everybody else already knows in his books. Um, but he was amazed how they would open up to me and not to open up to somebody like him or a psychiatrist or a producer for a TV show. And I told him it's because I care. You know, I'm building relationships with people. I'm not out to make money. Um, from private information, you know, through information like a podcast like this or permission to share something. It's a different story, of course. Um, but he really just wanted my personal letters, my conversations um, under the guise of, hey, let's do a book together, how faith can change a person. That's what I wanted to write, and which led to my first book, Serial Colors in Heaven and Victims in Hell. Um, that initially was my idea uh, for us, for me and Christopher Barry D., um, but the more I got to talk to him, the more uh, I found out it was all a scam. He's like, oh, I talked to producers, and this might even be a documentary series and a couple books and blah, blah, blah. And Well, it's not about the money for me, so I don't work with a contract. And just give me all your letters and information. We'll see. And then once I kind of called him out on it, um, then I found out that he had no intentions of talking about how God or somebody with faith or a Christian – um, can have their life, life changed by faith, he could care less. He started getting violent with me over the phone, basically, very verbally abusive, uh, talking about, oh, these people need to suffer. They're child killers and uh, women killers and murderers, and God won't forgive people. I'm like, well, why did you agree to write a book with me about it then? Now, he just wanted all my letters. He just wanted my personal information to take and to do whatever he wanted with. He's not a good guy. Yeah, well, he's uh, even Victoria Redstone, a good parent. You know, she, she came to visit me, right? And, of course, she has a, a book out there like uh, you know, Motel Zero or some damn thing where she's, she's interviewing this um, John Wayne Ford, Adam, Adam Wayne Ford, there in Northern California, walked into the sheriff's office and threw down a severed breast, said he was a serial killer. Wayne, Wayne Adam Ford. Yeah, that name I know. Okay, Wayne Adam Ford. And it was, when Wayne Adam Ford uh, surrendered himself to the sheriff, um, and I read, I, I'd read about it or saw it on the news. I looked up this county and I wrote him a letter about what to expect in the legal system. And uh, his lawyer had written me back to thank me for informing him on who to trust, who not to trust, and what to say, what not to say, where to go down, and, and that there's, the system isn't like it, like he thought it was. But the lawyer was really, you know, he he had he felt the need to write me and let me know that. Uh, he appreciated my input for, you know, 
put the, the case on his shoulders that this this guy wasn't go off on a banshee going somewhere else with it. But, yeah, but, but Victoria got a hold of that case, and this guy went to trial nine years after he turned himself in. He's still on death row, I guess. He's on death row. But uh, the big thing is, is that then uh, she decided, because I wrote it, written him, that she was going to jump on my wagon. She came in. She's a beautiful woman. Don't get me wrong. She's a supermodel. Oh, wow. Supposed to be an actress. And I, told her, I think I told you she was, her, her, her movie was The Helicopter Girl. If you look it up, you look it up and you, you watch the show, the whole thing is she's laying on the beach in a bikini and a helicopter uh, crew up above them is, is buzzing her. That's the whole damn thesis for the whole damn movie. Yeah. Anyway, so she comes to see me up here for about four days and she makes a big, you know, uh, the staff gets involved, wants to be involved with her. And uh, so she's no longer allowed to come see me because suspended because of all the drama she brought in. But then when I went to Riverside County, California, she's the one who gave me the book from Mr. Christopher Berrigine. Oh, wow. I found that here again, right? But I went to court and she was there with her, her cell camera, her cell camera, whatever, her cell phone, the camera, pointing fingers at, you know, showing, you know, taking pictures of the courtroom while I was in court. And then they, they made it more about her, you know, bringing that in and they confiscated her phone. Well, Later that day, she comes to visit me with a couple more supermodels. She just about everything in on them. And she said, oh, I had another cell phone. Oh, she was, oh, anyway, yeah. just nuts. Well, she writes me from time to time. And then what, I called her on the phone one time. And I was, she was in the car. And uh, you could hear her. There a bunch of other people in the car. And then she was narrating people. Her, I'm talking to a serial killer. It's so on the... So basically what it come down to is a white elephant in the room. <laughs> the supermodel from the United Kingdom. She, her, her, she brought her mom and dad over from the UK to follow her career in America. Yeah, I just found her online as we we're talking. Yeah, she's she's not bad looking at all. <laughs> yeah, but she's not all there up, upstairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, all right. That was part three uh, with... My conversation with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Again, we're going through all um, all eight of his victims. Um, it's it's been, it's been, to me, it's been wild, really getting inside the mind of a serial killer. Um, again, some of these men and women I've known for years, so it's, people ask me all the time, not just how to write them, but like Christopher Berry D, I was talking in the conversation, even, you know, seasoned and award-winning writers and psychiatrists and producers um, ask me, how do I get them to open up? I just care. You know, I'm not um, just out to make money. Uh, I don't make any money off this podcast. Maybe hopefully you can get some advertising one day. I got a couple bucks off of books. I'm not getting rich off any of this. Um, I do it for the rehabilitation to really get inside the mind and know how they think. How does a psychopathic mind think? How is it healed? If there's baby steps We've seen in, in healing uh, towards a healing process of a psychopathic mind. Um, but it's just fascinating to me. I hope it's fascinating to you um, getting to hear from a serial killer, especially somebody like Keith. Obviously, Keith um, doesn't really feel empathy like we do. Um, not really remorseful like we would feel remorse, of course. So it's fascinating to him to the way he describes the crimes and, and the murders uh, very nonchalantly. Um, it's just fascinating to really get that type of insight. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, again, we heard 
uh, again, who we thought was Cynthia uh, Lynn Rose Wilcox. Um, we don't think it was her. You know, almost positive that it wasn't her. And what wasn't recorded uh, in this conversation is there is somebody now looking at that area of the cafe. It's kind of a highway one right near it, but some of it's still all dirt um, where the trucks had that little turnaround where he's talking about that, you know, that powdery dirt, uh, bringing some cadaver dogs in. Um, they're going to one, – one police force is trying to uh, block that um, because, you know, we don't think they want to know there's a body there because, you know, they'd have to admit they were wrong in all these years. I mean, poor Cynthia's gravestone, like he said, says killed by the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson, or worse to that effect. Um, but we're trying to get it done, not me personally, but uh, somebody who's reached out to Keith and that he's known for a while. I forget the lady's name and her organization, but they're trying to get the cadaver dogs um, with the police. Uh, to go sniffing around that ground because there's another body there. I mean, Keith is open and honest about all of his murders. Uh, there's no reason for him to lie about this, and I certainly believe him. So does a lot of people. So who knows what the cadaver dolls will find. We'll obviously keep you posted on that. Well, anyway, thanks for listening to this podcast. Um, uh, soon you'll get some more from Bruce Davis, from Keith Jesperson, from Robert Bardo. Uh, Eric Houston's coming up. David Berkowitz is coming up. I'm working on uh, Douglas Clark. I've written to him back and forth over the years. I'm trying to get him to come on the podcast. I sent him my number, my last letter. Uh, he forwarded his, the, the number to uh, a very good friend of his uh, that takes care of a lot of stuff for him. I guess him and his girlfriend, him and his wife, uh, they contacted me. Uh, so we're working on something like that. Hopefully we get Doug on the podcast because there's some things that Doug did. Um, but if you know his case, I, I think he's totally innocent. Um, not for everything, of course, um, but we'll get into that. Maybe if not, we'll just do a podcast separately on him, but hopefully he'll be joining the show soon. All right. Well, thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Until next time, see ya. See ya.